Concord Matters is a production of KFUO Radio. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere, since 1924. Text the letters KFUO to 41444 to join the legacy with your tax-deductible gift. Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO. Online at KFUO.org. Good afternoon and welcome to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. We're coming to you live on this blustery Tuesday in St. Louis. October 24th. I'm your host for this program, Pastor Charles Henriksen. I'm the pastor of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bonterre, Missouri. If you wish to find out more about our congregation, go to stmatthewbt.org. This program, Concord Matters, we're going through the Book of Concord, the Lutheran Confessions, what our churches believe, teach, and confess on the basis of God's holy word. And we invite your participation in our program today. Uh, We have a toll-free number all across North America, and that number is 800-730-2727. Again, that's 800-730-2727. We also have a phone number here locally in St. Louis. That phone number is area code 314-821-0850. Again, That is area code 314-821-0850 here in St. Louis. You can also reach us by email. Our email address is kfuo at kfuo.org. We have two guests in our studio today, two prestigious and esteemed gentlemen. Um, I believe both with earned doctorates. Uh, Yes, they're nodding their heads. I see the, the brilliance emanating from your heads here, that's or it. actually the lack of hair, maybe that's it. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's actually, uh, it's not uh, for any other reason than neither one of us have anything on top to hold it in. So. <laughs> the hair is becoming more countable. Yes. <laughs> and we have here uh, Dr. John Sias. He is the secretary of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. So does that mean you take dictation from Harrison, or what What does that mean that you are the... Yeah, I'm really secret- a shorthand uh, during okay. the convention. Uh, <laughs> what are your responsibilities as the secretary of the Synod? Uh, I keep track of all the uh, resolutions of the Synod, uh, all the official documents of the Synod, uh, keep everything in order, and make sure everybody acts according to the rules. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I notice you've been sending out a lot of postcards and emails I lately. I do send the postcards. I don't personally send them all. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> and what are those about? Uh, just to try to inform everybody in the Synod about how to participate in our polity, how to uh, take part in making the decisions that elect people and decide where Synod is uh, going to act next. So Good. And you've been a parish pastor prior to this. I was uh, seven years in Montana. I had a triple parish out there, ran about 120 miles on a Sunday. And uh, before that, 
my doctorate was in electrical engineering. So okay. I'm a, a doctor rev, not a rev doctor, I guess. All right. Well, <laughs> it means you still had some little gray cells doing things up there. So we'll put them to use today. Very good. And then uh, uh, next to him and between, between us is the Reverend Dr. Uh, Kevin Golden. Uh, and he is the pastor of Village Lutheran Church in Ladue, Missouri. He's one of the village people. So, uh, <laughs> yes, the village people, the villagers, all kinds of good uh, ways to refer to us. Yes. And uh, Kevin, your doctorate, I know we had a, a number of Ph.D. classes together, is in biblical studies. Correct. And particularly in the Old Testament, right? Yeah. Um, the wonderful thing about the program that you and I were in, Charlie, as you know, was uh, had a good focus on both Old Testament, New Testament. So we were uh, able to become proficient and uh, experts in both Old Testament Hebrew, Biblical, uh, New Testament Greek as well, and the theology uh, packed into both. But then uh, you get to end up focusing one direction eventually or the other, and I went with Hebrew. And has your uh, doctoral work in the biblical studies uh, served you well as a parish pastor? You know, I, I definitely would say so as far as uh, it uh, gives you a good foundation when it comes to uh Sermon preparation, you've got a whole lot packed away that yeah. uh, um, is just ready to go. So also when it comes to Bible study and such. Yeah. And where can people find out more about Village Lutheran Church in Ladue? On the Internet? Yes, most certainly on the Internet. VillageLutheranChurch.org is our web address, VillageLutheranChurch.org. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, today we're going to be in Apology, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Article 5, Love and Fulfilling the Law. Now, we're using the reader's edition of the Book of Concord and their various editions. And in this article, in this section, depending on what book you're looking at, the numbering might be uh, one way or the other. But in this book, the reader's edition, uh, we're in Apology, Article 5, Love and Fulfilling the Law. Uh, either one of you, what is why is it called the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, and what's the context? Why is it being written? Who's it being written by? Who wants to take that one? So when the uh, Augsburg Confession itself was presented, there was then what was called the Confutation. When which, was the Augsburg Confession? So 1530, okay. and specifically June 25th of 1530 was when that was presented. And then following that, there was uh, presented what was called the Confutation, which was basically uh, those who were the enemies of the Reformers standing forth saying, oh, they're completely wrong. This Augsburg Confession is uh, completely wrong-headed and such, and contrary to what the truth is. Is. And so then the apology was set forth, not as a, I'm sorry, but rather in the classic use of that term from the Greek apologia, which means defense. This is what mm -hmm. you even hear. First Peter, uh, be prepared to give a defense for the reason, uh, for the hope that's in uh, that you have in Christ. And so this is that defense about, it's a defense of the Augsburg Confession to say, no, the Augsburg Confession is actually quite faithful to Holy Scripture, and um, therefore it is not to be confuted, but rather accepted because it is drawn from the Word of God. <clears throat> and Dr. Sias, why would there be a controversy about love and fulfilling the law? Uh, and by the way, who's, who's penning all of this? Well, this is the work of uh, Dr. Melanchthon, of course, uh, one of Luther's closest associates, uh, who uh, works out in great detail this defense of, of the doctrine. Uh, the question of love and good works uh, comes out of the kind of uh, surface accusation that the Reformation and the Lutherans 
are uh, destroying morality, are destroying the faith by telling people uh, that they're saved simply by faith without works. And uh, the fear, of course, is if you tell people that, the world's going to go to pot. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the Lutherans, uh, in fact, rise to the challenge here and show that, uh, as uh, we've seen in the foregoing paragraphs, true good works uh, before God are impossible without faith. Uh, that it is only in the confidence of the faith that's given, justification by faith uh, for Christ's sake, um, that we're able to do true good works before God, and and only in Christ that we can have any confidence that anything we might do might be God-pleasing. Okay. The necessity of faith before, we're still teaching the necess- the, the importance of love and good works and all that, but what's what's the distinction there, Kevin? Well, you even use that word, the necessity of good works. This is something that was even brought up already in the uh, uh, the Augsburg Confession itself, that uh, a misreading of this whole thing would be to say, well, Lutherans are arguing that you don't need good works. But that's not the case. Uh, we actually confess good works are necessary. It's just that they're not necessary for our salvation. Christ's good work is sufficient for that. He has done that all. But now this is what we are called to by the Lord so that our good works are not uh, in order to merit God's grace and mercy, but instead a response to his grace and mercy. And what were the opponents, the adversaries, what were they teaching that went against this either? One of the ways that they would, uh, and this is, I believe, what you probably in part discussed last week. Sorry, I didn't get a chance to listen in. Um, But one of the things that they would be saying was essentially that it's your good works that merit God's grace, and uh, which in many ways turns that word grace on its head. And it's a good reminder to us when we have these conversations with those of a differing confession, and they say that we're saved by grace, you need to ask the question, what do you mean by grace? How do you define that term? Because really, a biblical definition of that term is that it's an unmerited favor of God, so that I've done nothing in order to merit this favor, but it's just given to me because that's the kind of God God is, all for the sake of our Savior Jesus Christ and what he's earned for us. So grace is not something you earn, it's something that you just receive from a gracious God. And this misunderstanding of grace, Dr. Sias, you mentioned the term before we went on the air, infused grace. Right. What would the Roman Catholic scholastic theologians of that time, and even beyond, what is this wrong way to understand grace? Well, uh, the the sense of it, and, I, and I'll be just kind of uh, general in treating it because this is a huge topic, uh, but the, the idea of infused grace is that this is a substance that's kind of poured into us from God that then enables us to do truly God-pleasing works. Which in turn merits which in turn, favor. Yeah, as truly God-pleasing work and pure fulfilling of the law then is able to merit uh, God's uh, pleasure and, and uh, the rewards of eternal life and so on and so forth. Um, this was, was really the Catholic teaching of, of Trent at that time, the Counter-Reformation, and already uh, in the Confutation. Um, it's interesting to me, though, uh, when one reads a modern uh, Roman Catholic catechism, uh, the Catholic Church has not on this topic moved toward the Lutherans, but has moved farther away. Uh, because uh, at Luther's time, at least the Catholic Church taught Uh, One needed the Holy Spirit, uh, one needed faith in Christ, and then could do these good works that then would be meritorious. 
But the modern uh, Roman Church uh, in its catechism teaches that there are those who do not know Christ, who do not have faith in Christ, but who in doing uh, the will of God as it's known to them in their hearts, maybe the natural law trying to keep the commandments that are obvious to us all, uh, they say now that these too can merit uh, God's favor. The anonymous Christians. So the anonymous speak. Christians. <laughs> you know, back, but even back in the Middle Ages with scholastic theology, uh, they had this saying, to the one who does that which is within him, God will not deny grace. So if you're doing your best, the best you can, God's going to give you this booster shot of grace so that you can then proceed to try to earn your... God helps those who help themselves. Yeah, of, yeah, right. Yeah. And Luther blew that apart in the Heidelberg Disputation right. uh, in 1518. Well, let's get into uh, this article in the Apology. Last week, uh, we were looking at um, paragraphs 195 through 200, and... Uh, Melanchthon there is taking on the, the Roman Catholic notion uh, that good merit, good works, good works merit God's mercy. That's kind of the Roman position, that good works merit God's mercy. And he's taking up some uh, objections to that that we would have uh, under this section called Results of the Adversary's Teaching. And he mentions several that we, we covered last week. First, that uh, the adversaries, the Roman theologians, do not mention faith, faith in Christ. And so they rob Christ of his glory as the mediator. That's one thing. And then second, that uh, this teaching of the Roman church leaves consciences in doubt because the law always accuses us. So you're not sure if you have done enough to please God. And then uh, thirdly, uh, this scholastic distinction between what they called condign merit, uh, wholly deserving merit, and congruent, congruent merit, um, that also uh, confuses people um, and uh, has them look to their own intentions. Apparently, I think this condign merit was you're doing a good work that agrees with God's commandments, and you're doing it with the really best intention, so you really deserve it. And the congruent merit seems to be sort of a, a step below that. You're doing a good work, maybe your intentions aren't the best, but God's still going to reward that. And, and Lutherans would say to that, well, you're making a distinction that Scripture does not make. That's one issue. That's a problem, I would yeah, say. Yeah, uh, that's a huge problem, yes. And also, um, if you look at your intentions— um, my intentions are never pure. And I, I was uh, reading through Luther recently on Psalm 51, and this is one of the things he uh, just kind of keeps driving home, is that he says, the opponents don't rightly understand sin, and if you don't understand sin properly, you can't understand grace properly. Mm -hmm. And so that sin isn't just about my outward actions, it's also about um, my inner condition, my nature, that I am yeah. sinful by nature. And therefore, uh, I... I can't not sin, all right? Everything I do is tainted by my sinful condition, and so my motives are never pure. Even when I'm doing what is a good thing, it's infected with an impure motive. And Melanchthon's going to get into that in the yeah. new material we're going to take up. Anything to add, Dr. Sias, on that? Oh, I think the, the congruent and condignant, uh, or condign merits, uh, that's precisely the, the thing. It's how do you know? When a merit is uh, is condign, is something that is done, uh, uh, powered by God's grace in you, and is uh, a saving thing, 
Uh, there's no certainty of faith in that system, and uh, also no, uh, you know, ability uh, to approach repentance mm-hmm. uh, in a thoroughgoing way. Uh, because if uh, the confidence of faith uh, comes from a search of your life for condign merits, looking for these truly good diamonds that are shining through the rough, uh, this uh, this leaves a lot of material in the dark that we probably mm-hmm. ought to be bringing before God to have dealt with. Mm-hmm. So uh, one is left to look into oneself mm-hmm. to see if you've done enough. Absolutely. And Melanchthon identifies that here as, as uh, going one of two ways, either to the very pit of despair, if one is uh, honest, uh, about the lack of these condign merits, which are, are truly only in Christ, uh, or to that kind of hypocrisy that... Uh, pride. Pride, yeah. yeah. yeah, Simply refuses to see anything but a good outcome in oneself. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go on with our, our next section here, paragraph 201. I'll read it and then ask our guests for their comments. Fourth, the entire church confesses that eternal life is attained through mercy... Augustine speaks this way in On Grace and Free Will. There he speaks about the works of the saints completed after justification. God, quote, God leads us to eternal life, not by our merits, but according to his mercy. He, Augustine, says in his Confessions, Book 9, Woe to the life of man, however much it may be worthy of praise, if it be judged with mercy removed. And Cyprian, in his treatise on the Lord's Prayer, says this, quote, Lest anyone should flatter himself that he is innocent, and by exalting himself should perish the more deeply, he is instructed and taught that he sins daily, in that he is told to ask forgiveness daily for his sins. Let's take up these, uh, these two persons here. Who is Melanchthon going to here for additional support? to show that the Lutheran teaching is nothing novel. Well, he's going to church fathers, and uh, specifically you have Augustine mentioned here, who is uh, arguably the biggest of the church fathers. Lived about the year 400. Right, and uh, of course Luther himself knew Augustine quite well, because Luther had come through an Augustinian order uh, that had a special uh, reverence and uh, lineage, if you will, from Augustine. The other one is Cyprian, who's known as Cyprian of Carthage often, so uh, Carthage, North Africa, Mm -hmm. was his uh, home area. The big thing, of course, is that this is uh, a good demonstration of how uh, Lutherans and the Reformers have rightly used the Church Fathers, that the point is not that our doctrine is substantiated by what they teach. No, doctrine is only substantiated by Holy Scripture, but it points out we're not coming up with any novel teachings. Yeah. What we're actually setting forth is what the church has always taught. And look, here we're going back to Augustine, Cyprian, two huge early church fathers who are saying the exact same thing we're saying. And what Augustine is saying here is kind of the theme of this whole program today, that it's mercy, not merits. Uh, now, when uh, Cyprian here, he's talking about the Lord's Prayer and uh, where it says that the uh, person is instructed and taught that he sins daily, how does, Dr. Sias, how would Cyprian get that from the Lord's Prayer? Well, of course, it's a wonderful prayer our Lord gives us, and, and an amazing thing, you know, it's, uh, if anyone but our Lord were to teach it, one might say it's it's kind of indelicate or even impious to say to the Lord, uh, without, you know, laying out what we've done or why he should give us this day our daily bread, and then in the same breath, 
uh, and forgive us our trespasses. Yes, those two petitions, that's how I teach it in catechism, uh, Yeah. that as often as you can say, give us this day our daily bread, and which is like us. every day, yeah. in the very next breath you're saying, and forgive us our trespasses. That these two things are, are never apart, uh, that the mercy of God, uh, the grace of God covers and provides all. And that's how our Lord Jesus teaches us, you know, when you pray, say, give us and forgive us. Yeah, and when I teach on the um, the fifth petition, where Luther in his explanation says, uh, we ask that he would give them all to us by grace, for yeah. we daily sin much. I always ask the catechumens, where does Luther get this idea that we daily sin much? You know, And not all Christians would agree with that, wouldn't they? Right. Kevin, you come from more a uh, background that wasn't uh, Lutheran. As far as my home area, well, I'm a cradle Lutheran myself. My uh, home area was... Uh, Lutherans were the uh, oddballs that people wondered, what is a Lutheran? Because we weren't that populous. Would everyone agree that we daily sin much? No. You know, there's certainly uh, what is sometimes called Christian perfectionism, uh, and where an individual believes that, uh, hey, you mature to a point where you no longer sin. You know, some will go even that far. Others where it's a, it's a rather odd lapse when you fall back into sin because you have been uh, so... Uh, matured into the Christian faith. Yeah, but uh, our Lord Jesus says that daily we can pray, forgive us our trespasses. And that's what Melanchthon is making the point here, is that we need forgiveness every single day. We need forgiveness every single day. All right, Uh, continuing on in paragraph uh, 202, Melanchthon writes, but the subject is well known and has very many and clear testimonies in Scripture and in the Church Fathers. They all declare with one mouth that even though we have good works, yet in these very works, we need mercy. Brothers, how would you, uh, how can that be? If you're doing a good work, why do you need mercy or forgiveness? You brought this up earlier, Pastor Golan, that even in our good works, we need forgiveness. What do you, how can that be if it's a good work? Because I'm a sinner. And even in your good works? Even in my good works, yeah. This is, uh, I can't get away from my very nature, all right, that I am by. Uh, so uh, another way to go at this is that I'm not a sinner because I sin, but rather I sin because I'm a sinner. Mm-hmm. And so that even if I stop the sin, let's say I have a day where I really control myself and I don't fall into sin at all, I still have a problem in that I'm a sinner. And my therefore my sin, that nature that I have, is attached to everything that I do. Yeah, you may end that day saying, hooray for me, and what's with this other guy? Yeah, exactly. So there's that, the that's how, how our sin can even infect our good works. Explain. A- absolutely. And uh, you know, one of the great liberating facts of the Lutheran Reformation or uh, central teachings about the law is that the law is spiritual. You know, our, our Lord uh, and Luther both... Uh, shared a realism about the human nature. They understood the depth of, of our human depravity. And uh, we understand that with, you know, Jesus saying things like, you know, he who looks at a woman adulterously yeah. commits adultery. But uh, but also with regard to our, our, our better nature, you might say, uh, look at what St. Paul says, that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Is sin. 
Uh, and so, you know, that which I do, which, uh, you know, I, I might do to earn uh, Pastor Golden's favor and for him to think I'm a great guy and to, to maybe buy some life insurance from me or whatever. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not selling life insurance, but, uh, um, you know, if, if that's my goal, if this, does, this work does not proceed from faith and true love for my neighbor, but my looking to get something out of it, even my eternal salvation, what is the thing? It's an yeah. idolatry. Right, right. Even you can think about uh, since we brought in the Lord's Prayer already and we're praying to our Father, you know, there's there's a ton of gospel poured into that also. But also children inherently do this sort of thing anyway where— uh, Even your I, children, Pastor? Even my children, and I did it when I was a child where I was doing the right thing because I knew what mom and dad wanted me to do, but my motivation for doing it was all wrong because it's about— Oh, I'm going to build up some brownie points with mom and dad that I can cash in down the road to get whatever I want or whatever it might be. You know, this is interesting in that the Roman Catholic scholastic theologians were looking at these good works with less than that were done with less than great motives and trying to find some room for merit in those. And we're looking at the same phenomenon works where good works where there's maybe some not the best motives and we're seeing this would be a, a, a cause for us to be considered a sinner. It's right. two different ways of looking at it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all based on this idea that we can merit God's mercy. All right. We've got about one minute before the break. Uh, let's see here. We'll just read on a little farther here. Paragraph 203. Faith, looking upon this mercy, cheers and consoles us. The adversaries teach wrongly when they praise merits and add nothing about this faith that takes hold of mercy. For as we have said before, the promise and faith mutually agree with each other. The promise is grasped only through faith. We're going to pause there. We'll come back to this point about the relation between faith and mercy. And you're listening to Concord Matters here on KFUO. Celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation through song on Sunday, October 29th at 3 p.m. with the Bach Society of St. Louis Chorus and Orchestra, Bach's Reformation Cantata, Ein Festeburg ist unser Gott, and Heinrich Schutz's Psalm 136. Highlight the program along with audience participation in joyous Reformation hymns. Music of the Reformation, Sunday, October 29th at First Presbyterian Church in Kirkwood. Purchase tickets online at bachsociety.org or by calling 314-652-BACH. Hi, I'm Andy Bates, and I invite you to join me at 10 a.m. each weekday as we explore the stories of experts and everyday people in their given vocations. Faith and Family weekdays at 10 a.m. on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. Join Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service and congregations across the country as we celebrate Refugee Sunday, a time to lift up the gifts that migrants and refugees bring to our country and to reflect on Christ's message to welcome the stranger. Together, we can continue the mission of welcoming, embracing, and empowering newcomers. Visit lirs.org kit. 
to download the Refugee Sunday Kit for your congregations, including worship guides, bulletin inserts, videos, and more. LIRS.org slash kit. Your smartphone takes you anywhere instantly. At a click, you can read, watch, or hear just about anything. Some websites are good, some are bad. Some sites truthful, and others are deceptive. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Hear the truth of Jesus daily on Worldwide KFUO. Using today's smartphone technology, KFUO brings the gospel to you wherever you are. KFUO is just a click away, 24 hours a day. KFUO.org. John Rogers printed the second complete English Bible in 1537 under the pseudonym of Thomas Matthews, known as the Matthews Bible. But in the early 16th century, it was illegal to own an English Bible. Tyndale translated much of the Bible into English and was ultimately put to death. Rogers took on Tyndale's task, and he was later executed burnt at the stake in 1555. For the Matthews Bible, Rogers used the translation work of Tyndale and Miles Coverdale, who had published the first complete English Bible in 1535. When the Bible was published, the attribution read, translated by Thomas Matthews. Historians conclude that it was likely a pseudonym for William Tyndale, his name still too dangerous to use. Engage with this book many have died to preserve. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. We are back on Concord Matters. We're in Article 5, the section on love and fulfilling the law. At And we left off in paragraph 203. I'm your host, Pastor Charles Henriksen. In studio with us are John Sias and Kevin Golden, our guests today. And uh, you can give us your comments or questions. Toll-free number 800-730-2727. Locally in St. Louis, 314 314- 8210850 our email address kfuo at kfuo.org all right we left off in this section where melanchthon is saying that the adversaries praise merits they add nothing about faith that takes hold of mercy um and uh, and he says there the promise is grasped only through faith so we say that the promised mercy agrees with the requirement of mercy of faith and cannot be taken hold of without faith. So we justly find fault with the doctrine about holy deserving merit, meritum condigni, since it teaches nothing of justifying faith. It also hides Christ's glory and office as mediator. We should not be regarded as teaching anything new in this matter. The church fathers have clearly handed down the doctrine that we need mercy even in good works. We've already talked about needing mercy and forgiveness even in good works. But what is the point Melanchthon is making here about the relationship between mercy, we've been saying mercy, not merits, but between mercy and faith? What's the the relationship here between mercy and faith? Either one of you. So faith itself, um, you never just have faith. Faith is always uh, has an object for it. And so even faith itself, you can say, is defined by 
in what is the what is the object of that faith. So I might talk about I have uh, faith in my Kansas City Chiefs this year, but the last couple uh, games they played have rocked my faith a little bit. Uh, on the other hand, when uh, the object of faith is perfect, then faith itself, if you will, will be perfect because it's sure and certain. So the object of Christian faith is Christ. And therefore, also when we uh, speak about having uh, faith regarding mercy, that's also about, well, who's the object of that faith. It's Christ who is merciful to us, the Father, the Spirit who are merciful toward us. And so therefore, uh, mercy is uh, is not just something that floats around out there, but rather it's something delivered by God to us. And there is where the faith uh, has its object in God who is merciful. So faith justifies, faith saves, not because it's my faith, like I'm doing some great work, but because it's faith resting in and trusting in Jesus Christ, whose work is perfect. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we so easily want to convert everything into a work, right? Because it's yeah. all about me, naturally. And uh, uh, But but faith is not just one one of those. Um, I'm, you know, always interested to, to, to back up just a little bit in, in not only what is cited, but, but who is cited or whom is cited. And uh, in citing Augustine and Cyprian, um, Melanchthon here, he, he really, you know, there, there, there's something of a, a, a poke in the nose here at the, the <laughs> Roman side, because Augustine, of course, is, is one of the greatest of the church fathers, does battle with the Pelagians, uh, those who just crassly said were saved by works, you know. Uh, this is the great battle of his career, and uh, so inciting him against this position and, and his tenacious hold on God's grace— He's uh, saying, hey, look, guys, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Augustine had this right. Where, where are you? And then uh, Cyprian, you know, uh, teaches the doctrine of the church. Uh, to Cyprian's attributed that, you know, outside the church, uh, 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 there is no salvation, uh, which was used against the, the Lutherans because they weren't with the Pope. Mm-hmm. But here he says, look at what Cyprian says about, about the church and the life of the church. Yeah. Pray daily for the forgiveness of sins. So these these heroes that the Ro- that Rome would at least pay lip service to, they disagreed yeah. with the scholastic Roman theologians Absolutely. on this matter. We're not saying that Augustine or Cyprian got everything right all the time. Exactly. But the Lutherans are saying we're not coming up with anything this, novel here. This isn't a bolt from the blue here right. in the sixteenth mm-hmm. century. Yeah. And gets back, the reformers, they're not revolutionaries. They uh, aren't looking to establish something new. They're just simply saying, let's uh, return to the clear teaching of Scripture, which has been set forth by those before us already. Very good. Continuing on now in paragraph 205, Scripture, now he's, he's mentioned church fathers, now he's uh, once again going back to the Scriptures. Scripture also often teaches the same. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Psalm 143, verse 2. This passage denies absolutely, even to all saints and servants of God, the glory of righteousness if God does not forgive, but judges and convicts their hearts. For when David boasts in other places about his righteousness, he speaks about his own cause against the persecutors of God's word. He does not speak of his own personal purity. He asks that God's cause and glory be defended. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Psalm 7, verse 8. Likewise, in Psalm 130, verse 3, he says that no one can endure God's judgment 
if God were to mark our sins, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now, Dr. Golden, you, the rabbi of the Old Testament here, um, (laughs) please explain. I've noticed this in the Psalms. You know, in the penitential Psalms, God, uh, David is saying, have mercy on me, and I, I, I'm a sinner, I need, I, no one is righteous, and so on. And yet there are these other passages, we kind of squirm when we hear them as Lutherans, where right. he says, uh, judge me according to my righteousness. Um, how do you understand those seemingly contradictory Right, right. And so uh, one of the ways is what is even presented right here, that David is presenting himself as righteous on one hand in comparison to the unbelievers who are his adversaries. And that such. I'm right in this, I'm doing the right in thing this in this matter, cause. In this yeah. matter, I'm, yeah, I'm involved in a just cause. So that's one. The second one would be is that, you know, just like we often uh, use the phrase simul justus et peccator, that I am at the same time a saint and a sinner. Mm-hmm. So also you could say the same thing that David could uh, confess the same thing, that uh, he recognizes before God that he is a sinner, uh, that his sin is overwhelming, but he also knows that he has been forgiven given by God and, and by that, by God's grace. yeah, by God's grace, he is righteous. And so therefore he can, uh, it's almost as if when I talk about my righteousness before God, if we were to do the same is to say, Hey, you have made me your own child in holy baptism. You've purified me. You've made me holy. Therefore do this very thing. So and what God I'm really, actually likes us to pray that way yes. to call him on, you know, I'm on holding child, him to his God. word. Yeah. 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 John, you want to add? This? People say, "Be careful what you pray for," right? And uh, but David is not at all doing this here. Uh, you know, if, think of of praying to the Lord. You know, judge me according to the integrity that is in me. What boldness, right? Uh, you know, uh, and if that boldness is placed in in me or in my supposedly condign merit, uh, woe is me mm-hmm. uh, to bring that before the Lord and say, "Judge me on that basis." But if, on the other hand, you know, that faith is in the mercy of God. And and I love uh, from Psalm 130 here, you know, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But also with you there is forgiveness. forgiveness therefore, therefore you are feared. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so faith and the forgiveness of sins, always together, never apart. Right. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on here with a katena of yeah. other uh, Old Testament quotations here. Paragraph 206, uh, I become afraid of all my suffering, Job 9, verse 28. Uh, If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, Job 9, 30 and 31. And then, who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin, Proverbs 20, verse 9. All these passages making the point that even in the Old Testament, they're they're saying that everybody's a sinner. You know, Paul does a katena of Old Testament quotations in Romans 3, making that very point, a long list, a chain of uh, Old Testament passages. No, no one is righteous, no, not one. But then now he goes to the New Testament in paragraph 107, and this is a, a familiar passage for many of us. Uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 8, and in many of our liturgies, uh, uh, we use that verse. It's almost like John there is quoting some some other group uh, in his context. I remember in studying uh, 
John and his literature, there seems to have been a group at the time, John is an old man, who were saying, almost like a slogan, we have no sin. Mm-hmm. Kevin, you want to expand I, on that? Yeah. Um, and this even gets back to something we were talking about a little bit earlier, those who would believe that uh, they can reach some level of sanctification where they completely stop sinning. And and John is, and see what these people were doing in John's situation was they're then saying, well, we're the superior Christians, and we got to pull away from right. the carnal the Christians. The super Christians. Yeah. A true There's Christian. always been yeah. this super spirituality uh, virus in, in the visible church, hasn't right. there? Right. And if um, that that kind of distinction between a real Christian and an unreal Christian or something is, is inherently unhealthy. Yeah. But if you want to talk about what is it that is the mark of true Christianity, it's a willingness to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. Mm-hmm. because then that puts me at the feet of a merciful God upon whom I am completely dependent. Yeah. Later on in this article, uh, Melanchthon will go to the, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Right. Uh, but that's a little bit later. Let's go on with some more passages here. Uh, as we already mentioned, now he says in paragraph 208, in the Lord's Prayer, the saints, the Christians, ask for the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, even the saints have sins. We made that point earlier. Uh, The innocent shall not be innocent. They're referencing Numbers 14, verse 18. Uh, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, verse 24. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. Zechariah 2, 13. And then a familiar passage. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Isaiah 40 verses 6 and 7, and then uh, Melanchthon comments on this, namely, flesh and righteousness of the flesh cannot endure God's judgment. Jonah 2, verse 8 also says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That is, all confidence is empty except confidence in mercy. Mercy delivers us. Our own merits, our own efforts do not. Any comments on any of these passages he cites? Is he citing them fairly? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they are being used faithfully and fairly in this discussion. And um, it's uh, just kind of driving home with one passage over another. Uh, well, this is a reminder of a good practice within theology is that we don't establish any doctrine on the basis of a single passage of Scripture because we may just be misreading that specific passage. But when you start bringing passage after passage that drives home the same point, it makes it very clear we're not misreading this, but rather Scripture's exceedingly clear about it. And Dr. Sias, we distinguished law and gospel what seems to be running through these passages that he's quoting here? Yeah, this is, you, you, you kind of read my mind here. I, you know, the, this is not only a, cle- a clear doctrine of the Scriptures, among others, there are many doctrines in the Scriptures, but, but that this is the core message, uh, the fundamental distinction, uh, the art of theology, the distinction of law and gospel, uh, you know, the, the, the affliction of the evil conscience with the law, uh, the breaking of of the sinner's will to oppose God and to do his own thing, but then also this great comfort that Christ has done it all for us, uh, atoned for the sins, uh, not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world, lest there be any doubt, and then the precious for you of the sacraments, uh, so that the Christian may have this absolute certainty of faith 
uh, that the forgiveness of sins is for me. Uh, these these wonderful katanas of Scripture that first pummel us from every direction with the law and leave us nowhere to escape, but then uh, placard Christ before us as the one sure refuge and say, yeah. "Here, ye who are, are are weak and heavy laden." Now, to show the error in the in the in the opponent's teaching, he's got to emphasize these law passages which show that we're all sinners. Yeah. He's then going to also then uh, get to the gospel yeah. about Christ as our mediator and our high priest, and that their teaching actually is diminishing Christ as our mediator and high priest. And, and a teaching that first seems to magnify the law, or that, that does magnify the law, makes it something greater than it is, that, that makes the law promise to save, at the same time makes the law less than it really is. Because... If the law is the thing through which we seek our salvation, we'll be afraid ever to see the law for what it is. Uh, if I know that if the law is spiritual, if it strikes not only my outward deeds, but my words and the thoughts of my heart, you know, that's a problem for me. And this is why Jesus had to amp up the law in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he says, you need a better kind of righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were they were sort of making the law manageable, something that they could do to look better than other people. And Jesus says, no, it's much worse than you think. Right, yeah. right. Go ahead, Kevin. And that's, you just hit the nail on the head. The law properly understood, as Dr. Sias is pointing out, is something that I cannot attain to. And we're always tempted to try to bring the law down to an attainable level so that, look, here's how here's how I am uh, fulfilling sanctification, living the life I'm supposed to. God must be pleased with me rather than letting the law be its full severity that condemns me. And at the same time, here in this article, Melanchthon is going to say that doesn't mean we're opposed to love and good works. Right. It's just don't put the cart before the horse. Exactly. And and this even gets uh, down to what is a good work anyway. If uh, if a good work is all about meriting God's grace and favor, <laughs> that's not really a good work because what am I doing it for? Who am I doing it for? You're making yourself an idol. Exactly. I'm doing it. It's all for me. I'm looking for my own benefit. That's really not a good work. But a, a good work that is occasioned by not by any merit that I'm going to gain from it, but simply because this is what my father has called upon me to do, and this is what benefits my neighbor. Well, now that becomes a truly good work because it's not done for any reason other than out of um, faithfulness to the father mm -hmm. and concern for the neighbor. Good. All right, we got another Old Testament passage here from the book of Daniel, paragraph 210. Uh, let's see here. So Daniel also prays, quote, For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy, O Lord. Uh, hear, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel 9, verses 18 and 19. So Daniel teaches us in praying to seize mercy, that is, to trust in God's mercy, and not to trust in our own merits before God. I think back to when the Lord has to uh, uh, admonish Israel, and he says, it's not because you're so great 
that and Moses, you know, will say, it's not because you're so wonderful, you grumbly people, <laughs> but because God is so merciful, that's why he's doing these things for you. Yeah, and you even see that uh, that's uh, as they continue along with the Exodus uh, account and such. That, uh, But even when the Exodus begins... Uh, the people of Israel are down in Egypt. They're grumbling and they're uh, because of the weight that's upon them. But it's interesting that God responds not because of them insisting that they uh, need to be delivered or because they were grumbling, but rather it says he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God is good for his word. He's true to himself. Yes. And so even in this passage, Daniel calls upon God, hey, um, Pay attention and act delay for your own sake, because you've promised to do this thing, and therefore this is all about your own uh, honor, your own goodness, your own faithfulness. Mm -hmm. Your people are called by your name, so therefore uh, we bear your name, so you honor your own name by saving us. Okay. The length thing goes on then. Uh, we also wonder what our adversaries do in prayer if the ungodly people ever ask anything of God, if they declare that they are worthy because they have love and good works and ask for grace as a debt, they pray precisely like the Pharisee who says, I am not like other men. Luke 18, verse 11. Uh, he who prays for grace in this way does not rely upon God's mercy and treats Christ with disrespect. John Sias uh, why is Melanchthon quoting here? What's the parable that Jesus is teaching there when he mentions about this, how this Pharisee prayed? Oh, of course. The, the What's the lesson in that? Yeah, the Pharisee and the publican, the tax collector, uh, the Pharisee prays uh, thus, you know, I'm not like other men. I'm glad I'm not like this Pharisee and the Pharisee. Oh, this publican. Uh, or, I'm sorry, like this collector. publican, yeah. And uh, we like to turn that parable around in our minds, you know. Of course, uh, well, I'm not like the Pharisee, but uh, <laughs> so the, then we are. The, the trap is is sprung. But uh, uh, the publican uh, prays, you know, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Beats his chest. Yes, and uh, and Jesus says, behold, this man went down to his house justified, and not the other. Yeah, the Pharisee was just quoting all his good things that he does, as though this should merit yeah, him. Tied by mint and cumin, and so on, and so yeah, forth. Yeah. Uh, as, as they did. And so uh, he he who boasts before God of himself goes home with nothing from God. Yeah. So we come as beggars before God, as Martin Franzman mm -hmm. would say, on the basis of uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right. Yeah. Right. All right. One more section here we want to cover in uh, paragraph uh, 212, I would say, uh, the, how the opponents... Uh, do not rely on God's mercy, treat Christ with disrespect. After all, he, Christ, is our high priest who intercedes for us. So prayer relies upon God's mercy when we believe that we are heard for Christ's sake. He is our high priest, as he himself says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, John 14, 13 and 14. Without this high priest, we cannot approach the Father. What does it mean to say, uh, Dr. Golden, that Jesus is our high priest? Uh, most of us don't come from a Jewish background. Uh, in fact, most Jews, Jews today don't even have a high priest. Right. Uh, what is the high priest of the Bible, and how is 
Jesus, our high priest. So you'll find this language of the high priest all over the place, but in the New Testament, it's most prominent in the book of Hebrews, mm-hmm. where a lot is made of that about Christ being our high priest. It, of course, goes back to Old Testament and the uh, the temple and the sacrifices that were established by God himself in the book of Exodus, and uh, even the priesthood itself established by God. So this is God's own good order. The first high priest, of course, was Aaron, that is Moses's brother. And the job of the high priest was, uh, you could look at two major functions that the high priest, but also the rest of the priesthood would fulfill. One was sacrifice. Now, Christ, obviously, he is our high priest, and he's a high priest unlike any other because he does offer sacrifice for us. What makes him unique, though, is he offers just one sacrifice, not the countless sacrifices that were taking place in the Old Testament temple, but rather a once-for-all perfect sacrifice of him himself. He's mm-hmm. the only priest to offer himself as sacrifice. Then the himself second... Himself the victim, himself the priest, as we ex- sing in that communion hymn. Exactly. The second big thing that the priesthood was for was for intercession. So they would be the ones carrying the prayers of the people to God. Okay. And and so here, Christ, our high priest, is what that's what's specifically focused on in this paragraph, is that he is the one who intercedes on our behalf. He speaks on our behalf to the Father. So that this is, as uh, the paragraph points out, what it means that we pray in Christ's name, mm-hmm. that uh, we aren't praying alone, but rather we pray in the name of Christ for the sake of Christ. So the reason that the Father has a kind ear for our prayers is because it is offered by faith in Christ, our great high priest. So he's made the one atoning sacrifice like the high priest would make on the Day of Atonement, but it doesn't have to be repeated. And also he is standing and gives us access to God's throne of grace for our prayers, like the altar of incense, where the prayers going up and as a sweet-smelling uh, fragrance uh, before the Lord. Now, with just a couple of minutes left, um, uh, I want to ask you both, as we're one week from today, and most of us this Sunday, will be observing the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, October 31st, 1517, Luther and the 95 Theses. What is the big takeaway, you say, just with a minute left, 30 seconds each, John Sice, uh, what are you? What are your thoughts about the approaching Reformation anniversary? Oh, uh, reading the Apology again, it's all about two things: the glory of Christ uh, and the comfort of consciences. Yes, and uh, the comfort of sinners, and both those are epitomized in the cross. Uh, to placard so clearly before the people, Christ crucified, Christ for you. It's the still all about of, Jesus. The certainty of faith and the forgiveness of sins. What a treasure. What a gift. Mm-hmm. Kevin. And the key word that I love that Dr. Sias uses, certainty. Certainty. Yes. And this is why it's always directed at Christ, because when I direct into myself, if I look at my own works, I'm left with doubt. And my troubled conscience has no comfort. But when everything is directed to Christ, his cross, what he has given me in my baptism, what he delivers to me in the supper, what he proclaims in his word, now there's certainty. There's no doubt because Christ is always good for his word. And so, dear friends, this good news is for you. That's what this whole Lutheran Reformation in the Book of Concord is about. It's about Christ, your Savior, who does this for you to give you salvation and forgiveness and everlasting life. That's the purpose of this program. That's the purpose of KFUO, the messenger of good news.
Concord Matters is a production of KFUO Radio. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere, since 1924. Text the letters KFUO to 41444 to join the legacy with your tax-deductible gift.